Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. My name is Brian Mitzman. I'm a thoracic surgeon with NYU Lango and Health. We have a special international roundtable set up in light of the current COVID-19 pandemic. As you can tell, this is not our normal in-person format, but extraordinary times call for inventive solutions. I'm joined by many leaders in medicine at the forefront of this crisis. We'll try to focus on treatment of the disease, but we'll start with some overview of what is happening around the world and some introductions. I have Dr. Alan Siho, an honorary consultant in cardiothoracic surgery at Glen Eagles Hong Kong Hospital. He's the international director of the Society of Thoracic Surgeons, a counselor with the Asian Society for Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery, and associate editor of EJCTS. Dr. Aaron Chang, associate professor of cardiothoracic surgery and the surgical co-director of the CTICU at University of Washington. He's also involved in the ECMO program. Dr. Janelle Bajalak, assistant professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine and Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the University of Washington and director of ECMO Education. And finally, Dr. Gino Gerosa, professor of cardiac surgery at the University of Padova, director of heart transplant in the MCS program, and president of the Italian Society of Cardiac Surgery. Padova is in the northeast of Italy in one of the hardest hit regions in the country at the moment. My sincerest thanks to everybody for joining us today. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. Let's get right into it. Dr. Siho, Hong Kong's Hello. been uh, lauded as being one of the few countries to effectively limit spread from the onset. You guys initiated early travel bans and screening, and as of today, only have 181 documented cases. Many say it was due to the impact of SARS in 2003. What's your experience been, and how are things going? Absolutely. I, I think Hong Kong, more than any other city in the world, has been severely affected by SARS back in 2003. And that put us in a pretty unique situation for this COVID-19 crisis. I think back in 2003, Hong Kong, we had 1,755 cases out of just over 8,000 cases in the entire world of SARS, of which 386 were healthcare workers. Of the deaths of 774 deaths around the world, we had 299 deaths, including nine healthcare workers. So that really left an indelible scar on the entire city. And ever since 2003, nonstop, I think people have always had a very low threshold for wearing masks. Uh, we've been very wary of elevators. Uh, so. Uh, we've had regular, almost two-hour cleaning of all the buttons everywhere. Hand sanitizers are ubiquitous in all the hospitals. Temperature checks in all the major buildings. So that's already been the sort of the, the baseline level we had in Hong Kong. So as soon as we heard 
of what was going on in Wuhan, this is in the last few days of December, already we were on alert. In fact, the government actually issued an alert on the 31st of December, just as this thing was uh, starting to break and all the uh, medical community was already put on alert. Uh, on 8th of January, before Hong Kong even had a single confirmed case, we already listed uh, COVID-19, what wasn't called that then, the coronavirus, <laughs> as a notifiable disease. Hospital visits were limited. Everybody coming into hospital, into the clinical areas, had masks on, including uh, relatives visiting patients. As soon as we had the first two cases of confirmed uh, COVID-19 in January 23, we already uh, established uh, quarantine centers, quarantining people uh, from infected areas coming in. We canceled the Chinese New Year celebrations, the biggest uh, event in our calendar. On the January 25th, when we only had five confirmed cases, we already declared a state of emergency in the healthcare system for, uh, uh, for the whole of Hong Kong. Uh, the public hospitals were restricting all non-emergency services. We reserved services for uh, COVID-19 just in case. And this is done when we only had five cases. By the time we had eight confirmed cases on January 27th, schools were closed. We were starting to close the borders to China. And I think that's why we kept this, the, the surge of cases. We actually flattened the curve very, very effectively. But that only tells part of the story because that was the official response. So it was a very quick government response. The government has had some criticism, but overall, I think they've responded fairly quickly. But more than that, I think it was the community, the entire seven and a half million people in Hong Kong knew what to expect. So even in mid-January, as this thing only just started to break, people were already stocking up on masks and hand sanitizers. Yes, there was an initial panic situation. People were buying up uh, all the supplies, including toilet paper, but that uh, quickly settled. And I think what we saw was that uh, throughout the streets, uh, the streets were becoming very, very quiet. Everybody knew in, uh, instinctively not to go out if they went out, there was always a mass everywhere. They didn't touch anything. They used tissue paper when they're pressing the buttons on the elevators, for example. When they came home, it was immediately, they, they, they uh, sterilized their hands, cleaned their hands, uh, took off their clothes and disinfected clothes or at least aired them. Uh, they took off their shoes, made sure they cleaned all surfaces with dilute bleach. This is common knowledge amongst the entire population. And I think what, what strikes to me, as we look at some of the responses across the West, I think uh, across the West, I think we're seeing people already understanding the need for hand hygiene, social distancing. But some of the finer details, for example, what to do actually when you actually get home is still not quite there. Another thing that in Hong Kong we learned from SARS was toilet sanitation. Even when you go to the toilet, put the seat covered down before you flush, sterilize all surfaces, minor things like that. The U-pipes in all the plumbing, we make sure we're filled with water so you don't contaminate other people in your apartment block. Final details like that, I think. So it's a combination of both the official response and the public response together. I think that really limited uh, the local spread within Hong Kong. Having said that, I think uh, as we're taping this, uh, one of the emerging challenges is the number of people, uh, Hong Kong citizens, returning from overseas, mm -hmm. potentially bringing a second wave of cases back into Hong Kong from abroad. And I think that's something we're needing to watch out for in the days ahead. Yeah, it sounds like uh, people in Hong Kong took this very seriously from day one, which unfortunately is not something that we've seen here in the United States so far. 
Yeah, I, I, I think uh, what in Hong Kong, even though the number of people died, it sounds small, 299, we were all scarred. I think mm-hmm. everybody knew somebody who was uh, who had SARS, uh, was very, very ill with it, mm-hmm. even passed away. And I think that left an indelible mark. What you don't see in Hong Kong is anybody even questioning mm-hmm. mass. Uh, there's no question about it. I think everybody just instinctively went ahead and did it. I think after this year, when this COVID-19 blows over, hopefully the rest of the world will also be better prepared. So let's go to Italy next. Dr. Gerosa, Northern Italy was hit hard. It was hit fast. Just three weeks ago on February 23rd, you had 155 cases, and now you're over 31,000, and you have over 2,500 deaths. How are you doing? Exactly. exactly. You're right. So as you mentioned, there are 31,000 cases up to 10.30 this morning, and you think that half of these cases uh, are located in the Lombardia region, uh, the region where Milan is sitting. Uh, I'm working in Padova, is in Veneto region, and we are facing the same problem. I can tell you that I'm at home in quarantine because I'm positive to the COVID. So oh. don't get worried because I'm on the other side of the computer, but I'm in quarantine because uh, I got infected probably by a cardiologist that has been uh, tested last Wednesday and I had a meeting with him discussing an heart failure patient on Monday morning. So I have to say that I've been lucky because they tested me because he was positive, I was sick. So I resulted positive, so I'm in quarantine at home and now it's eight days after the test last uh, Wednesday. So uh, having said that, I can tell you that Padova Hospital is in a very difficult situation. All the post-operative uh, care unit has been closed down and transformed in a general ICU for COVID patients. Also the operating room has been closed down in order to gain uh, nurses and to gain uh, material at apparel to set up a new ICU bed for COVID patients. So I can tell you that in uh, Lombardia region, for example, out of 21 cardiothoracic centers, 17 has been closed down and there are only four cardiothoracic centers doing urgent and emergency operation. In Veneto region, we have six centers for cardiothoracic surgery and no one of these centers is allowed to do elective cardiac surgery operation. We are only allowed to do emergency operation or urgent operation that cannot be delayed. So what's considered elective cardiac surgery? That's a, an issue we're having in the United States is who makes that, that determination? This is a very good question. At the beginning, we thought that the triple vessel disease could be somebody needed to be operated in less than 30 days in Italy or a symptomatic aortic stenosis should be operated within 30 days. And now we are just doing, for example, very sick patient. And I'm talking about... Uh, acute aortic dissection, and so on. Okay. We did crowdsource questions from the CTSNet community in preparation for this, and I think this is a perfect question for you. A surgeon in Arkansas uh, asked, uh, how do we handle the all-hands-on-deck approach here if healthcare workers are getting exposed and then are getting quarantined? Soon enough, we're not going to have enough doctors, nurses to take care of these patients. Should we be staggering our workforce? Italy and in Veneto region, if you are positive, but you do not have symptoms, you go, however, to work. Mm. If you are working in the hospital. As okay. long as you have symptoms, you stay at home. But without symptoms, even if you are uh, positive, you go because wow. you have a lack. Of and what kind of precautions are those, uh, those physicians taking? 
wear masks. Mm -hmm. That's a mask and all the other, but you have to go. There's also uh, quite a few rumors spreading around the states of significant rationing of care in Northern Italy right now, where sick elderly patients are just being told to stay home. You're out of vents, uh, really out of ICU beds. How, uh, how true is that? Yeah, in the last uh, weeks, you know, there were a lot of rumors about the fact that they were not intubating elderly mm -hmm. people, the lack of ICU bed, the lack of ventilators. So far, the situation is pretty dramatic. They are trying to increase the number of ventilators they are starting to produce because you cannot even buy ventilators right. abroad. So they're trying to produce those ventilators uh, in the country. But so far, this... Uh, dramatic decision to start a triage and select which patient you know should be intubated uh, according to age comorbidities uh, at the moment is not taking place but the situation if the situation will uh, get worse of course the triage will take place gotcha let's go to seattle doctors chang and bajalak you're currently in what's considered ground zero for the american outbreak your first death was reported back on February 29th, weeks before other areas of the U.S. were even giving this any thought. What have you seen so far? How are things progressing the last two weeks? Yeah, I can go ahead and start. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, with our first patient being identified in January 21st and then the uh, outbreak happening at a, um, a nursing home uh, in uh, February 29th and um, quick with a fast uptick in patients um, that... Um, mainly went to one of our uh, area hospitals uh, and then uh, sustained community spread uh, with increasing cases. And now to this morning we have, um, or last night, I guess we have a thousand cases in, the, in Washington and 54 deaths. And most of them are happening in King County within um, Seattle. Um, so uh, what we've seen is uh, currently now we're starting to move load share across hospitals because we've had the first instance where one hospital is overwhelmed with resources um, and um, uh, trying to, so within each of our hospitals, at least in the University of Washington, we have um, a couple of hospitals within this system. Um, it, it mainly have most of our patients that, we've, that are coming into our hospitals are coming in through our emergency departments and so developing our screening process and then trying to determine where we're going to put those hospital, put the patients within the hospitals has been a really dynamic process. Um, uh, so for the screening in the emergency department, um, when, we, when we have any patient with any URI symptoms, um, they're being placed in a, um, a, uh, an, an area for respiratory rule out um, with uh, PPE to enter that area with emergency medicine providers and um, then when we have a patient that we feel needs an admission, um, they are uh, quarantined in a certain area of the hospital as a person under investigation where we um, uh, keep them isolated in negative airflow rooms. Um, and then um, now we've uh, converted one of our ICUs into um, a COVID ICU with individualized negative airflow rooms with the eventual plan to make the entire unit a negative airflow trying to decrease the utilization of PPE so that we may be able to have providers enter that unit um, and wear PPE for a, a period of time and rather than changing PPE each time you enter or exit a room. So it's sort of been this staged tiered response as we try to ramp up modification of the hospital and also canceled or, or post started postponement of all elective OR cases on mm -hmm. Monday 
which has significantly helped with um, decreased utilization of PPE and redistribution of that workforce to other places because we have a lot of talent in the operating rooms mm -hmm. that we can use for critical care. Yeah, I think from this perspective of the, uh, the response, at least, I think the uh, the initial crisis over at the the uh, nursing home sort of elevated the severity of this within the medical community across uh, the Seattle region. So I think in many ways that crisis was recognized at least within the medical community. So there's been a up ramp to uh, increase surge capacity across all our institutions, uh, healthcare institutions in the Seattle King County region, uh, starting with the uh, one of the aspects was the cancellation of any elective surgical cases, but also I think the state and our governor has really called to arms and brought forward that I think it's been a little bit surreal for our public to sort of see all the restaurants, the bars, what sort of had been a thriving economy from uh, the service industry, the restaurant just completely be um, quietened because of this. But what we're seeing hopefully is that we're going to be able to flatten that curve and, and, and be able to handle it from the standpoint of the mm -hmm. resources um, within the um, within the healthcare system. Obviously, you know we we are still we're, we're still not sure what's going to happen, but we're uh, we're trying to prepare as readily as possible for this. Right. You just uh, mentioned a very common phrase: flatten the curve. It's trending all over Twitter. You know, I think we all know what it means, but what does that actually mean, and how does it relate to to healthcare? Yeah, the, <laughs> yeah the, the most important thing that can be done right now in the United States is uh, slowing the transmission of the virus. So um, that's really in the hands of the American people, that people do not come in close contact with one another, just like with Hong Kong. Um, the, the only way for us to slow this down, because we have sustained community spread, is to make new cases appear at a slow enough rate at which our healthcare systems can actually care for the critically ill. Because if people um, acquire the virus at a rapidly explosive rate, then the rate of critical illness will skyrocket and it will exceed the capacity of our healthcare system to care for people. And then we will have more high, much higher mortality. Great. So let's talk a little bit about diagnosis. Uh, just quickly, how are most of these patients presenting when you guys see them uh, either in the emergency room or when you first see them in the ICU? Um, what are some common symptoms? I guess that's a good question for you, Dr. Bachelor. Yeah, so the tricky part is, is that there are a myriad of different symptoms mm -hmm. and some patients are testing positive and you never suspected that they would. One patient just had myalgias and uh, no respiratory symptoms. So mm -hmm. we're basically, we're trying to be extremely um, liberal with our screening process um, as far as um, taking precautions or testing. So we don't necessarily, we don't have enough tests, unfortunately, to test everyone that we'd like to, to know a true denominator of this disease. So we're trying to utilize the test in the smartest way possible. The um, virology lab at the University of Washington has done heroic things to um, de develop a test and to ramp up testing capabilities where we're able to test thousands a day in our lab. And uh, trying to extend that capability to other labs too, because right now we can turn over a test in about eight hours, but many other hospitals that are nearby, it takes days still. Mm -hmm. um, and that has huge implications for utilization of PPE if you have a patient who requires hospitalization um, and you're waiting for COVID rule out for days. So right now, if a patient comes into the emergency department and they have any respiratory symptoms um, or flu-like illness symptoms, um, so like cough, rhinorrhea, fever, myalgias, um, some 
also GI symptoms, um, as shortness of breath, hypoxemia. Um, all of those patients we would consider a COVID rule-out and isolate them in the ER. Patients that we are testing are patients who are in high-risk populations, so patients who are living homeless, immunocompromised, or pregnant, um, or are over the age of 60 with comorbidities. Um, and we're testing these patients regardless of um, whether or not we're going to send them home. Um, the main, one of the main concerns is people who are living homeless or in congregate areas of living. We really want to know um, if that patient is uh, positive for COVID. And we, need to, and we have worked really hard with the city and the county to mm -hmm. identify temporary housing um, for these patients so that they can self-isolate. Um, so either in a, um, a COVID lounge or an isolated area of our ER um, pending testing um, to then either to discharge or to, di um, to their current living situation or to discharge to housing if they're COVID positive, just to enable people to self-isolate because the worst thing that can happen is these outbreaks, which creates a huge surge um, in patients that we see when we have this happen at a nursing home. Um, and so if this happened at a group home or a homeless shelter, the same kind of thing would happen. Mm -hmm. So that's really key. Um, and then any patient, of course, who's coming into the hospital gets tested and ruled out and isolated. Great. Dr. DeRosa, as you've heard and have seen, we're doing a fairly poor job about testing in the United States just because we don't have tests. What are your criteria in Italy to test patients and how hard it is, is it to actually screen them? This is a very good question because uh, so far in Italy, especially in the region, there is a big discussion in how to proceed with the testing. If to test everybody, this is the solution proposed by our political authorities here in the region. They would like to test everybody. But this, of course, was a, a big problem in terms of financial resources mm -hmm. and human resources and time that you need to test everybody. Because the idea is to uh, isolate everybody that is positive, even without symptoms. Because this could play a role in reducing the outbreak. Uh, so far, of course, uh, uh, is tested, people are tested if they have symptoms. I was lucky, I was tested because I had this uh, meeting with the cardiologist the day before that he fell sick. So they, they, they actually uh, found me positive. And at that time I was, I would say, mildly symptomatic with a little bit of cough, not that much. Now, of course, uh, uh, after eight days, uh, probably because I'm producing cytokine, interleukin, and so as a uh, response mm. to the, the disease, I'm having fever uh, overnight and uh, coughing is a little bit improved. I have, not, I have no short of breath, so I keep my finger crossed. I don't want more. <laughs> yeah. Let's just like, go ahead. Uh, just yeah. like to jump in there. I, I think uh, we're, we're all focusing correctly on the testing, but I think the other part of the element of that is uh, self-quarantine. And that needs to be emphasized because as we know, many, many cases are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic. So as long as you've had contact or you've traveled from abroad, right now, Hong Kong lists the rest of the world as potential <laughs> infected cases. So everybody who comes into Hong Kong 
automatically goes into 14-day quarantine, either self-quarantine, and we're now talking about uh, using phones to track people or using an electronic bracelet to track people, or if you cannot quarantine at home, we've actually set up uh, some summer holiday camps mm. as quarantine sites. And I think this is something that uh, I think the rest of the world can also uh, uh, take reference to. Uh, while you're quarantined, obviously, you watch out for symptoms, and uh, if you're symptomatic, you get tested. Uh, just as an indication, in Hong Kong, as of today, uh, out of 2,886 uh, suspicious case reported cases, we've already ruled out by testing 2,451, wow. the vast majority. We've, we're taking a fairly low threshold for, for testing, and I think that seems to be doing the trick more or less. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.